So, we move on then to this uh, description of the consecration of the tent of meeting, particularly of the, the altar and then of, of the Levites. So have it open in front of you, please. Uh, you might, if you have a spare bookmark or something, you might stick a bookmark in Revelation chapter 1 as well, because we'll be referring to that a bit later on. Now, when you get into these um, chapters, sometimes can seem a bit odd the way they're organized. They sometimes seem to jump, perhaps, from one subject to another. And we need to understand why. And I think structure in these first ten chapters of the book of Numbers is actually quite important. The people, remember, are camping in the wilderness, in the wilderness of Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula. don't know exactly where. I wouldn't regard that arrow as being definitive of exactly where they were, but we're just told they were somewhere in the Sinai wilderness. And they were getting ready to march. Chapter 10 describes the actual start of the march. And the camp is arranged as we saw a few weeks ago, with the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, in the middle. And reflecting this, this whole description of the preparation for marching has at its centre the spiritual life of the people. And in chapters 5 and 6, we covered what we might have think perhaps as of the civil law, it's perhaps not quite that, but certainly the laws that govern relationships between the people. That was what chapters 5 and 6 were about. And then we had Aaron's blessing at the end of that. It's in these relationships that Aaron's blessing is found. But now in chapters 7 to 9, we consider the spiritual life of the people. And in particular, in chapters 7 and 8, we discuss the tent of meeting and the things associated with it as itself. There is some doubt, actually, as to the exact chronology. Numbers 1.1 says that the census took place in year 2, month 2. And it is possible to fit these 12 days or so into that month. But other passages, such as Exodus 40, chapter 2, suggest that these events might have taken place, in fact, before the census, in year 1. Uh, sorry, in, I said year one, month one, but that's not what I meant. In year two, month one, in other words, in the month before the um, census, that's possible. Um, the, the first Passover is in chapter nine, verse one, of course, was the first month of the second year. But it certainly all took place in a very short space of time, within a, in a month or two. And if it is the case that actually this, this dedication of the tent of meeting was actually before the census, that's all the more reason to understand why the material is, printed, is presented here at this point because of the structure of the text. And so we need to look for structural clues when we come to understand why this material is presented in the way it is. And if we do that we can see that, in fact, the basic structure of these two chapters is, is, is a chiasm, that uh, 
sandwich structure that is very common in Hebrew literature. And so in chapter 7, we have the offerings of the tribes. To Sorry, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, we have, first of all, practical help in terms of transport for the Levites to do their job. And then we have the offerings of the tribes to dedicate the altar, explained and set out in great, at great length. And in the center, we have this passage, what was in the center of the tent of meeting. We meet, have the ark there and the sevenfold lamp. And then, chapter 8, we have the cleansing of the Levites, um, matching, as it were, the, the offerings and the dedication of, of the tribes. That's chapter 8, verses 12 to 23. And then it finishes with more practical help for the Levites, in this case talking about their retirement plan. But actually the structure is cleverer than that because there's also a linear structure because all of chapter 7 is about offerings, contributions of the tribes. And all of chapter 8, from verse 5 onwards, is about the contributions and activities of the Levites. And uh, both those discussions are quite long, lots of words, particularly the offerings of the tribes. Um, and then in the middle, we have this almost cryptic central section, from just from just five, five or six verses, from chapter 7, verse 89, through to chapter 8, verse 4. After all these words, we have just this very brief, sparse description. And it's almost as if the, just the central mystery here defies verbal description. So we won't go through the passage linearly. We'll uh, translate the, the Hebrew chiastic structure into our tendency to things, see things in a more linear way. So we'll look first of all at the, um, the, the, the offerings, and the, well, the practical stuff, and then we'll look at the offerings, and then we'll conclude by looking at what is actually going on in the central sanctuary. So that's the order we're going to go about it. And so we see, first of all, that there's pra there are practical issues here, issues of logistics. Spiritual realities have to be realized in the physical world. We don't actually gather literally in the heavenly Zion, because we just know where it's getting there. We gather instead here. And what is being described here in these passages, of course, is, is basically a mobile temple. A place to meet with the living God, but also a place that can move as the people march on. And that means certain practical constraints. And of course, all this religious paraphernalia needs to be transported Tents are heavy, poles are heavy. If you've ever tried to put up or take down a marquee, which I did do, I've done many years ago, you realise it's not an easy thing to do. And if it's windy, it can be well nigh impossible. 
great strength is required. And there's a lot of stuff to carry and, and to um, transport about. And so we have some practical issues here. Ox carts are needed to carry the tent itself. And all that humping of canvas is going to require men in the prime of life, isn't it? And I think that's what's uh, the point about this age restriction, this age limit of, of 50 in 826. It's not that the Levites would, Levites would retire entirely at the age of 50, but you know, they'll be past their greatest strength. And so they, um, they won't be doing the heavy list, lifting. They'll says they'll be assisting. So there are practical considerations. We sometimes think of this kind of practical planning as somehow unspiritual. It's very easy, isn't it, when we meet for elders and deacons meetings or when we meet for, as members. Sometimes we're discussing issues of a practical, logistical nature, how to organize things. And it's easy to think of that as unspiritual. But actually it isn't unspiritual. This is the work of the kingdom. Without the ox carts, that tent was not going to go anywhere. There's no way it was going to be possible to carry it across a desert. Without efficient organization, the church is stuck. It can't move. We need organization in order to move, in order to progress. And yet there is another side to this. It's true, isn't it, that this isn't just a matter of logistics. There are other considerations. And the first thing we notice, of course, is human resources, health and safety. There is provision for the welfare of the workers. In fact, there's even provision for the animals. They're not to be worked to death. Uh, the, the ox cart that we had this morning had just one ox, but um, there were two oxen per cart. I don't know whether it meant they pulled together or whether they had a, a shift on and a shift off. I don't, I don't know, but even the oxen are given relief. They're not to be worked to death. Another scripture says, do not muzzle an ox when he's trampling out the grain. But if even the oxen are not to be worked to death, certainly the Levites are not to be worked to death either. <laughs> They're not expendable. Those who labor in the gospel are not cannon fodder. They're not to be regarded as expendable or to work for nothing. I think somebody once uh, asked Spurgeon to recommend um, uh, somebody for a pastorate and explain what the, the remuneration was going to be. And Spurgeon said, well, you, you better employ the angel Gabriel because he can come down for, from heaven at weekends and you won't have to live for the rest of the week. Um, if we value the word, we should actually be prepared to pay for it, shouldn't we? <laughs> and we shouldn't drive people, in, drive those who labor in the word into the ground, as it were, to an early grave. Because they might find not an early, just an early grave, but an early spiritual grave as well. How many pastors, as we've noted of late, have not finished well because they've not kept themselves well, not kept themselves as they should have done. And of course, 
those who labor in the word have the stresses of everyday working and timekeeping just as everybody else does and we need to allow for that and the second thing to notice is that these logistics are subject to spiritual laws the rules of holiness must be observed that's what chapter 7 verse 9 says the Kohathites must uh, carry the holy things we had that very well illustrated this morning didn't we with uh, David's little play and uh, uh, what went wrong when David did it wrong what went wrong when he had the ark transported by ox cart well the result was a disaster and uh, led to the death of one of the Levites who was not observing these laws properly and not only was it a disaster for that particular person but it meant there was a long delay before the ark finally made it to Jerusalem if the proper spiritual laws are not obeyed if we do not use the proper weapons as Paul says not carnal weapons but declaring the word honestly and faithfully if we do not do that then it's not going to enable the church to progress it's going to have exactly the opposite effect the work of the gospel will be delayed the ark will not make it as it were into the holy city and even in our practical dealings we do have practical dealings in this world don't we and we, as Christians we need to observe standards of integrity and behavior in fact if the point of all this organization and all this planning has any purpose other than spiritual progress and if the methods employed are not consonant with the aim in mind then the journey will be faulty and disaster prone we won't make the progress we should in fact any apparent progress will actually be illusory in Christian service the end never justifies the means so we do need practical organization but it needs to be practical organization on spiritual principles and with a care for those who work and labor in the word Now, what about the offerings themselves? Let me just first of all point out one interesting fact is that the tribes in chapter 7 bring their offerings, but in chapter 8, the Levites are the offerings. And that distinction is worth noting, and I'll say a little bit more about it. And this, as the commentators point out, this description in chapter 7 of the offerings of the tribes are unusually verbose. They're spread out in time over 12 days. They're presented actually by the military leaders of the camp. They're the same leaders as are the uh, leaders that are um, described in the, the map of, of, of the camp, the command, military commanders of each tribe. Some of them are the same as the census takers in chapter 1, but they're not all the same there, but they are all the same as the, the military commanders of the camp. The order of the offerings, which the order which the tribes bring their offerings, reflects also the military structure of the camp. The leaders of each 
sub-camp. Remember, there's a... Let me just go back briefly. Remember, there were four sub-camps, um, east, south, west, and, well, north. Um, and the way it's organized is that each... Each... The commander, the, the lead tribe of each sub-camp brings the offering first, and then their two companion tribes. Each tribe brings the same offering. We didn't read them all, <laughs> but you can go through and check. <laughs> They're all exactly the same. They must have cut and pasted, I think. The, uh, the probably whoever had the scribe, poor scribe who had to write all this out, actually, rather, probably rather regretted that... Uh, didn't have cut and paste in those days. He would have had to copy it all 12 times. But they are all exactly the same. <laughs> Each tribe formally declares its participation in the life of the tent of meeting and brings a suitable offering. Each tribe brings the same offering. That indicates that each tribe has the same value. I think that's the point. That's why it's recorded they all bring exactly the same offering. Because each tribe has the same value and has the same investment. Each of the people of God has the same investment in the people of God. It's possible, it's quite common nowadays, perhaps to be overcritical of formality and ceremony in the life of the church. We Protestants, we Baptists particularly, tend to be a little suspicious of ceremony and sometimes ceremony can just be going through the motion, going through the words of a ritual. But when the ritual actually genuinely points towards a spiritual reality, as it did here, then that formal acknowledgement of that spiritual reality could be a, an important thing as long as it genuinely point, points towards that reality. And that's why we do have certain things at certain formal meetings such as our members meeting for instance when we go through a, a form of words to to make that commitment formal a marriage is much the same isn't it it should be formal if it's informal it's not doing the job properly and this is a formal gathering of the tribes one at a time to present their offerings of course the problem arises if the ritual replaces the reality as it so often does. But when the ritual points towards a true reality, spiritual reality, then it's worth doing. The actual offerings, you may have noticed, are quite modest. A couple of kilos of silver. Uh, 130 shekels is roughly 1.4 kilos. Solid silver, just to give you an idea. I bought this with me. I'm sorry, I forgot to clean it. I hope their offerings were rather cleaner than this one. But, but <laughs> this is a dish made of solid silver. It's the only dish I've got, I think, that is made of solid silver, but I happen, we happen to have one in. It's a kind of family heirloom. Um, and that weighs 1.1 kilos. I don't know, because I weighed it myself. So think of the, each, the larger silver dish as being a little bit bigger than that. The smaller one as being somewhat smaller than that and then what must have been a quite small golden bowl some translations describe it as a spoon which is probably not not far off 
because gold, of course, is heavy. So uh, they wouldn't have been very big. And that's all that's required from each tribe, apart from some animals. Uh, that perhaps is a, a further indication that the census numbers might have been misunderstood because um, that, from a tribe of 60,000 that would not have been a very big offering but be that as it may it's interesting to contrast really the quite sparse offerings that these tribes bring here with the extravagance of the dedication of Solomon's temple uh, if you, we won't look it up now but if you look in 2 Chronicles chapters 4 to 7 you find you know, there's, they're knee deep in gold and it says there were sheep and bulls being sacrificed that were too many to count the whole thing was uh, you know, the greatest show on earth in almost in some ways the dedication of Solomon's temple and yet this dedication is quite sparse it's quite almost you could almost say it's austere we know they brought some treasures out of Egypt so um, they probably didn't have wasn't very difficult for them to find the gold and silver for the dishes they might have had more struggle it occurs to me actually to provide the flour and the oil given that they'd already been in the desert for a year. It says it's oil, olive oil and fine flour. One wonders where they managed to, to find that in the desert. But anyway, they did. And I think there was a lesson here also, that it isn't the quantity of service, in a sense, that God requires, but it's the quality and the honesty of it. And you remember Jesus commented when he was watching people drinking offerings in the temple. You know, the rich came and chucked in their gold coins or whatever it was. They weren't really sacrificing much. But then a poor widow put in a penny and Jesus commented that was all she had to live on. She's given her whole life to the work of the temple. That's a far greater offering than these rich people who had given out of their riches. It's the quality and the honesty of the offering that is what God requires. It's not the quantity. <coughs> but if the tribes make their offerings, the Levites are an offering. They're described actually twice here in chapter 8 verse 13 and chapter 8 verse 21 as wave offerings. You might wonder what that means. They, I don't think Aaron literally picked them up and waved them. But why are, they, why are they described as wave offerings? Well, the idea of a wave offering is found in the law, in, for instance in Exodus 29-27. And at most offerings that were... Um, made at the temple in the altar were somehow destroyed. They were either killed or they were um, burnt or they were sometimes the, the scapegoat was passed out of the camp but they weren't made available. But the thing about a wave offering was that it, the, it was corn or whatever it was was waved in front of the altar and then it was given as a gift to the priest so it wasn't destroyed. Instead it was, it was meant for the it was dedicated, yes, but it was dedicated for the use of the priests. And so it was in this sense that the Levites were a wave offering. They were made available to, for, for the priests to use. And actually these two verses, these two 
references to the wave offering in chapter 13 and chapter 21 actually bracket another chiasm, but I, I won't go into it in detail. But the centre of it is in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, where it talks about God's redemptive work in bringing the people out of Israel and dedicating the firstborn, consecrating the firstborn for himself. But then he goes on to say that in place of the firstborn of the um, of each well the firstborn of each woman Israelite, Israelite woman it says in place of that he's consecrated the Levites to his service so he he takes the Levites instead of the um, firstborn of each family and again it's important to see the order here those who are especially set apart for the work of the kingdom are first of all, aren't they, those who have been chosen by God himself. They are not so much our gift to God as God's gift to the church. Those are the ones that he himself has set aside for the work of the uh, work of the gospel, and yet it's also important that the wave offering is made, that the people participate in that consecration, and say, "Yes, this is this is our offering." They won't then begrudge the cost and the time and the resources have to be put into the work of the gospel and in particular in paying those who are work full time in the gospel because it is their offering for the work of the kingdom so while it is true that firstly those who are set apart especially for the work are the gift of God to the church it is also true that they are the offering of the church to God in place, as it were, of the, the service that all of us should perhaps be giving, and all of us do give, of course, but it, it's true because we can't give all our time to the work of the kingdom. Most of us cannot. And so we make that wave offering of those who are particularly set aside for, to work for the kingdom full time. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that these people are actually making a contribution that is really required of us all those who labor in teaching the word or as evangelists or otherwise labor full time are those who are worthy of double honor and in a sense we are contributing that service and saying in a sense we should all be doing that but uh, you know in a sense we can't and so we put our resources behind them and our encouragement behind them and they in a sen one sense serve in place of us that's what the, uh, the message is there. So, there are the, the offerings for the temple and the offerings of the Levites to the priests for the work of the temple. And as we said at the beginning, these bracket, this central focus. At the center of the passage is what is at the center of the camp 
It's what is at the center of all this activity. It's what's at the center even of all this, these words. And at the center of the camp is the tent of meeting. And in particular, of course, the sanctuary, the holy place in the middle of the tent. And what's in that tent? Well, actually, if you look at the other descriptions in Exodus and Leviticus, you find all sorts of things. But here, we're just told two things. We were told a bit about the altar with the offerings, but even the altar doesn't get a mention in this central place. Just the two things. The Ark of the Covenant, or as it's described here, the Ark of the Testimony, and the sevenfold lampstands. And after all this great long list, we find that the description here is very sparing of words. And commentators point out it's actually a kind of visual representation of Aaron's blessing because the word that's described for shining the light is the same as the word that is described for the light shining on the people. The same word is used in chapter 8, verse 2, as in chapter 6. Verse 25. But what's at the centre of all this activity? And we find then there's a change of direction. All we've looked at so far has been about the provision of the people for the tent, bringing their offerings, bringing their service, bringing their practical organisation to the tent. But the central truth is not so much that's what's brought into the tent but what comes out of it what the occupant of the tent the king in the centre of the camp has to say to the, it's what comes out of the tent that is the most important for the people not what goes into it the words are few and the personnel is pretty sparse as well there are only two two people but it's all packed with meaning. The ark here is called specifically the ark of the testimony, the place where God's word is to be found. And we read that the Lord spoke to Moses from the mercy seat, the space between the two cherubs on the cherubim on the uh, top of the ark itself. The Lord spoke to Moses from the mercy seat. And what he spoke is a message, one of grace, of favor for the people. And he speaks through the prophet. The prophet here is Moses. Moses is the one who sees the Lord, as it were, face to face in the mercy seat and passes on the words of God to the people. But even this is just a picture of the true sanctuary in heaven. Who is the one who truly brings the word from the presence of God. Well, that's why I said it's worth having your finger open in Revelation chapter 1, because there it tells us. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 to 19, says the following When I saw him, him here being the, the risen Christ, and I, of course, being the Apostle John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This was a person John had known well 
in life has been described as the one whom Jesus loved. And yet when he saw the risen Christ, he fell on his face, feet, at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. It's not Moses who meets with God, in the, with the Father in the true sanctuary, but the risen Christ. He is the one who brings the words of God to the people. He is the one who brings the gospel, who brings the true word of, of God to the people. It is Christ who is the true prophet. Moses was a type, as we say, of the true prophet, just as the sanctuary on earth was a type of the true sanctuary in heaven. But the true prophet is the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and what are we to make of the sevenfold lamp? We think of it perhaps as representing the, the Spirit of God. It borrows no light from the outside. One thing about the tent of meeting and later the sanctuary in the temple is it's got no windows. It doesn't borrow its light from outside. Rather, it glows from the inside out. The light shines out from the lampstand, from the holy place. Out towards the front, we're told. Notice that's the only thing we're told about it here, that it should be set up so that the lamp shines forwards. Well, if you look actually at a plan of the temple, you realize that what it falls on, in that case, is the table of the showbread. And the showbread was a table where, well, the table was that the bread was, the showbread was placed on a table, and loaves were placed there each week, and they represented, those loaves were contributed by and represented the 12 tribes. So symbolically, the light shines on the people. And just as in the blessing was promised in chapter 6, verse 2, as the light, the face of the Lord would shine on the people. So the light of the menorah, the sevenfold lamp, shines on the people. And the lampstand is solid gold. Even the ark is gold-plated wood, if you look at the plan for it. And well, I mean, again, from a practical point of view, it had to be a solid gold arc. Would have been impossible to carry, of course. But um, the arc is gold-plated wood, but the lampstand itself is pure beaten gold. That's what we're told about it, isn't it? It's hammered gold, the work of a craftsman, the work of a master craftsman. It's solid gold, the most precious metal available the most precious, best craftsmanship available. And it symbolizes the best that can be made on earth, I think, of the true perfection of God. Of course, it is not perfect. There must have been flaws in its manufacture. But it was the best that could be made to show the true perfection of God and the completeness of God, the sevenfold uh, spirit, which, of course, Im implies spiritual completeness.
whole of the book of Revelation is organized in sevens and it's organized around the seven lamps. But who is it who tends the light? Well, it's Aaron the priest, isn't it? And what's his job? Well, of course, he had various functions as a priest, particularly to oversee the sacrifices and uh, bring the blood into the um, holiest place. But we're not told that here. What we're told the job of Aaron the priest here is to keep the light burning and to keep it pointing in the right direction. Make sure when, it's, when he sets it up, he sets it up facing in the right direction. And again, Revelation gives us a glimpse into the two, true sanctuary of which this tent is just a copy. And who is the one who tends the lamp? Who is the one who wears the priestly robes among the, as he tends the lamp? Revelation 1, chapter 12 and 13, we read the following. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and I, when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. This is a picture of Jesus, the true priest about his business of, temp of tending the lampstands. So what are these? lampstands what are these lamps and here it's quite surprising if we were asked to guess we might have thought well perhaps it's the spirit of God or something like that or something that exists as it were in the sanctuary um, showing the perfection of God but actually that's not what Revelation tells us because if you look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 it says the following. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's not just that the lamps here shine on the people of God symbolically as they did in the sanctuary. Here the lamps are the people of God. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is at work, isn't he? Tending the lamps, keeping them burning brightly, shining the light of gospel out into the world. And as the next few uh, couple of chapters in Revelation tells us, that's not an easy job. <laughs> There's a lot of trimming and polishing and correcting that is needed in the church to keep it burning brightly and shining the light out into the world. They do need tending and trimming. And as we read those descriptions of the early churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that's very clear. But we're told that God has provided a prophet and a priest. Just as in the sanctuary he provided a prophet in Moses and a priest in Aaron. Now, in the true sanctuary... The prophet and the priest are one. And that prophet and priest is indeed the king at the center of the camp. And that prophet and priest is on the case. He's busy about the work of the kingdom. 
He's busy tending the lamps. He's busy bringing the word from the mercy seat to the people and out into the world. There was a substantial flow of gifts into the sanctuary and, that, and that's right. We should bring the best that we have, the best that we can into the sanctuary. We should bring the best people that we have for the work of the gospel, the firstborn as it were. But even more significant than that is the flow of grace out from the sanctuary into the world. At the heart of the camp and directed outwards is the word and the light. And the lampstand is the church. And there is a prophet and a priest there to make sure it all happens. And as I say, the priest is on the case, polishing the lamps. The prophet is on the case, bringing the word to the people. So as we close, let's um, sing a hymn, a song about.